Everybody, I thought that since we were not doing uh, masks and we're back to announcements, I'd have more time to catch my breath, but I guess I still need a second. Uh, I do have a little short announcement myself, something that's just been on my mind this week. Um, sorry, I'm just still trying to breathe. <laughs> uh, we do have, well, I looked, went on Amazon, you know, to buy something. I can't remember what it was, and there was this little tag that said, you know, how can you help Ukraine, something like that. And I thought, you know, money is good, but is your $150 really going to keep up with the $30 billion that the U.S. is sending over there? Maybe. It's, it's something. But what really is going to make a difference is the prayer that we have. I read a poem like last week by Tennyson. It was the death of Arthur. And Arthur, while he's dying, says, the world doesn't know what is wrought by prayer. He says that to one of his knights. We have two prayer meetings at our church, 7 p.m. on Wednesdays and 7 a.m. on Thursday. And we have a nation which is grieving heavily over things that have happened over this last week. We have a world which is grieving heavily. So if you want to make a difference, we do it on our knees. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was called old camel knees because he was on his knees so much he had calluses. So Wednesday at 7 p.m., it's in your bulletin. Thursdays at 7 a.m., room one, we have church-wide prayer. You're all invited. I would love it to be so big that we have to move out here. So with prayer, uh, let me open us up in prayer. Our Father and our God, we praise you for the truths that are revealed about you in your scriptures. You are sovereign God, a loving God, and a merciful God. Nothing takes you by surprise. Nothing is outside of your control. And we, as the faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, know this and we live by this. So we pray, Lord, today that as we hear your word, we would be encouraged and corrected, and that we would grow in our faith and our knowledge of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or your flip phones, if you still have any of those, or your smartphones, please turn to Jonah 3, 3 through 5. Um, Lord willing, we'll be finishing this book up in July, but I started it in June, so I hope you can remember everything that's transpired over the last year. Now, you might be wondering how much I could squeeze out of this book like a washcloth, but we're going to find out because I've got a few left. Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. This is God's word for God's people. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I don't know if uh, you're all readers, if you've read Ernest Hemingway's books at all, but you might have noticed that while you're reading them, from a certain perspective, not a lot actually happens when you read them. If you're an inexperienced reader, you might think, well, actually like I did, that the old man of the sea was incredibly overrated because there's nothing that happens except he goes out fishing and he catches a fish, and, and that gives you the Pulitzer Prize. Um, another book, a bunch of friends who are just you know, lazy alcoholics travel from Paris to Spain to watch a bullfight. A man gets wounded in World War I and falls in love with his nurse. A mariner smuggles some things into the U.S. from Cuba. But what you have to learn, know about Hemingway and other stories is the point of the book is not the plot, necessarily. 
but the different issues that are addressed and explored with the plot merely the vehicle to carry these ideas along. So it's not just about a guy catching a fish, it's about all of the inner dialogue and the thoughts that he has. Um, same with these other pieces as well. And that's why it's, it's hard to judge a book by the plot. You know, you go online or you, or you hear somebody tell you about a story and you, well, what's it about? Okay, that, that sounds really boring to me. Um, but so you, it's hard to judge a book by the plot because explaining the plot of the sun also rises or the old man in the sea wouldn't really be very exciting to most folks or very informative about what the book is actually about. You gotta read you know, reviews and see, this is, these are the concepts and the themes that were talked about in the novel. Well, Jonah is a pretty simple plot as well. Uh, a prophet is told to go to Nineveh, he refuses, and then he ends up going and he gets mad because his favorite plant dies. And there's a big fish also. So what's the point? And I think because we don't stop and wonder about the details, about the issues that are raised, that's why we, when we think of Jonah, we think of the fish. It's the book about a fish. And that seems uh, stupid or incredible to some people. C.S. Lewis thought that Jonah and Job were, were myths. They weren't, they weren't real. Um, because I think they, the point is missed. So what is the point? Well, the point or points of Jonah are what God intended his people to learn from this book about him, about themselves, and about what their response to this book should be. This story wasn't meant to entertain readers, but to instruct and to correct. And over the uh, first two chapters of Jonah, we have seen a lot that has taught us about God and confronted us, just as it was meant to do with ancient Israel, who were the original recipients of the book. I don't know whether it was an accident or not, but the very next book of the Bible is Micah. And we see that this is, if you read Micah, you see the state that ancient Israel was in when Jonah went and did this, uh, this mission to Nineveh. And our passage today uh, could have been at the very beginning of the book, really, if Jonah hadn't run from the presence of the Lord. And in fact, if Jonah had been obedient to the Lord in the first place, uh, the entire book of Jonah could have just been chapter 3, because really chapter 3 is he obeys and he goes to Nineveh and they repent. The last time we were in Jonah, we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, but unlike the first time, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh in obedience to the word of God. That was verses 1 through 3, so we're hitting verse 3 again. Our passage today, continuing on, gives us the initial results of Jonah's obedience. So since he's now obeyed, and we've gone through chapter 2 of the disobedience, what happens now that he finally does what God tells him to do? So in this passage, we're going to see that first, Jonah obeyed the word of God. The first point, Jonah obeyed the word of God. He arose and went according to God's word. Second, Jonah preached the word of God. He called out God's word of judgment, and he preached that Nineveh would be overthrown. And third and finally, the people believed God. The Ninevites believed God. They repented and mourned for their sin. So Jonah obeyed the word of God. Jonah preached the word of God. The people believed God. Let's look at the first of these three points, uh, which is verse 3 of our passage. Verse 3 reads, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Again, the first point that I listed was that Jonah obeyed the word of God. And this is a crucial point, which we can't just pass by quickly because we want to get to the plants or get, get on with the story. This is one of those details we find so much in Scripture. We, we just blow past a passage without seeing these little important things that are to teach us. The reason why this book isn't just chapter 3 is because at the beginning of the book, Jonah did not obey the word of God, but instead fled to the coast and he caught a boat headed to Tarshish in sunny Spain. As we covered before, God's word was clear. God's word was understood. Yet the man of God deliberately, intentionally, and pridefully refused to submit to God and to obey him. Why did he do that? The author doesn't tell us. You know, you've grown up with this book, so you know how it ends. But consider, again, reading it as a piece of literature, that in the beginning when he says that he fled, the Bible doesn't tell us what his reasons were. And I wonder, at least I think, that that might be to get us as the readers to fill in the gaps themselves and say, this is what I would do in that situation. You ever have uh, somebody give you that unsolicited advice? You know what I would do if, if I were you? And you get to see this is how they would respond in your situation. I almost wonder if that's why Jonah delayed. What's your reason for why you would disobey? For example, when somebody reads Jonah 1.3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, they might think, oh, he did that because he was afraid of the Ninevites. And reveal that in, put in a similar situation, fear would be their temptation to disobey God. Well, I wouldn't go to Nineveh. Do you know what they do to people over there? In the last June, we read this account by one of the Assyrian kings, and he was bragging about how he used to flay his enemies alive. Now, that's not the place that I would want to be going to share the gospel, but, so fear might be the first response of why I wouldn't obey. And similarly, people that feel that way would reveal that their own safety and comfort is more important than obedience to the Word of God. To say, I will obey God until it puts my life in risk would be the attitude of, the potential attitude of such a person. That's just one possible reason, but I think that's a big reason for most of us. And we have to face these kinds of questions in our own walks with the Lord. Why do we disobey God? When we disobey Him, what's the reason? And I want you to think about that because it's more than a rhetorical question, because almost all of us have sinful habits and sinful episodes where we flee the presence of the Lord and we get onto the boat of Tarshish. And what lies are we believing about God when we do that? I know you're a well-educated folk, so you might have heard already that you know, when you're angry, you're supposed to find out what, what are your circumstances at that time. Are you hungry? Are you tired? Um, what's going on that's going to trigger your anger and, and other sins that we do. Usually it's not just you're walking along and, and your signature sin occurs. There's usually patterns. There's behavior in ourselves. Are you super prideful so that when anybody crosses your God of self, you lash out at people? Um, do you worship something else? It's, these are these uh, self-examining questions we need to consider. Verse 3 of chapter 3 tells us something important. When God's word comes to him a second time, Jonah understands God's word and obeys it. And we do need to ask ourselves why we disobey God 
But as Christians, one of the reasons for our, our disobedience can't be because we haven't received God's word or that God's word hasn't come to us because it has. We have God's word in written form in our Bibles. So as followers of Christ, as Christians who ought to you know, be carrying our swords around with us, we cannot say it's out of ignorance that I disobey God. To know what God says through the Bible and to not live our lives differently in response to that word is exactly the same crime as Jonah committed when he heard the word of the Lord in chapter 1 and he fled from God's presence. He knew what God said. Is I don't like your opinion on this matter, Lord. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And as we covered in previous messages, disobedience to God inevitably results in uh, breaking with the fellowship. Jonah didn't just go back to his house in Jerusalem or wherever he lived. Uh, was, was it Gath he was from? I can't recall. He, uh, he fled from the presence of the Lord. And, and we see this in the church. When people decide that they're going to continue on in perpetual disobedience to God's word, they always leave a church. And they don't come back, usually. And it's strange, and it's grievous to me, how many professing Christians there are who learn what God has to say to them in the Bible and then ignore or deny or disobey God. I really don't understand the mindset of someone who says they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures, but their lives are marked by disobedience to what he says. And in fact, Jesus himself criticized this discrepancy and he pointed it out in Luke 6, verses 46 to 49, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is saying that those who hear his words and do not obey his words are headed toward ruin. God cares about our, dis- about our obedience just as he cared about Jonah's disobedience. And Jonah is an example of bad choices and their consequences. And I've said before in previous messages, don't be like Jonah. It's a good rule. You know that little wristband, what would Jesus do? Given that says, don't be like Jonah. <laughs> do what God says. Jonah shows us That even for the people of God, disobedience has serious implications. And this is a lesson which would have been key for Israel at that time who were in open disobedience. And again, Mike is going to say they had crossed the line and God was going to wipe them out. Moreover, the Bible tells us that our obedience to God's word is a mark of whether we're actually truly born again. It's a sign that you're truly a follower of God and not just an empty professor. Do we know what an empty professor is? Not not like an absent-minded professor. but it's An empty professor is someone who confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but never believed in their heart. And out of that unbelieving heart came the actions and the disobedience and the sin that proved this person never belonged to Jesus Christ in the first place. 1 John is a really great letter. It's a test of of Christian 
assurance. In, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to 6, it reads, And by this we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. Think about that for a minute. Whoever says, I know Jesus, I am a Christian, I believe in God, but does not do what God's word tells them to do is a liar and the truth is not in them. And that's not my prejudiced opinion because I, like you, would like to get out from underneath that. It's God's word. It's what God has to say about it. He says, if you confess that you believe in Jesus, but you don't do what he says, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So who are disobedient people lying to? Well, firstly, themselves. You remember uh, 1 Corinthians 6, I think starting in verse 9, Paul gives this list of sins, and he says, whoever does these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But at the start of the list, he says, do not be deceived. Like, don't be deceived. It's not okay to do these things. Don't listen to what the culture tells you where it says it's okay to slip on this one. Do not be deceived. Whoever does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is why God's word addresses this issue of obedience, so that we can ask ourselves if we are living in disobedience to God's word and lying to ourselves about our standing before Almighty God. If you're lying to yourselves, you're believing what you're saying. You don't know. This is why God has called us into Christian community. If we fall outside of the fellowship, we're going to follow our own way. Nobody's going to be able to confront us about the sin that's right here that we can't break free from. It's a very popular in American Christianity, the false American gospel, to say that you can be saved and live in disobedience to God, that your actions don't matter, that obedience is legalism, that to be a Christian means God doesn't care about whether you obey the Bible or not. What's not popular, obviously, is what God has to say about the issue. Yet it is what God has to say that we need to be concerned with because we don't do theology by popular opinion or the statistics. We hear God's word from God and we live our lives in response to that truth. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The popular opinion is the broad road that leads to destruction. And Jonah's disobedience was manifested in a ship on a storm that was about to be destroyed by the waves. The wages of sin is death, and the price of disobedience is your life. The followers of God are called to obey his word and enter by the narrow gate of obedient discipleship. Jonah denied God through his disobedience, and then he denied God overtly when he was confronted by the pagan sailors of the ship. But God brought the prodigal prophet to repentance, and Jonah learned that it was not his will, but God's will that must be done. Recall at the beginning of this message, what I said about Hemingway. Um, now, the point isn't the plot necessarily, but the issues raised by the story. In verse 3 of our passage, 
we need to ask a simple question. Why did Jonah go to Nineveh? Verse 3a, the first half of verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah did not go to Nineveh because he had a love for the lost. As you know from the rest of the book, he hated the lost. He wanted the lost to stay lost. And Jonah went, he did not go to Nineveh because he finally agreed with God that it was a good idea. He did not go to Nineveh when it was convenient or when he felt ready or when he felt safe. Jonah went to Nineveh because God told him to go to Nineveh. And this is our first point. Jonah obeyed the word of God. He arose and went according to God's word. The second half of verse 3 tells us that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city and says it was three days' journey in breadth. And it was funny, like the commentators that I read just went nuts over that phrase because they were trying to figure out how big Nineveh was compared with the archaeological evidence. John MacArthur says, well, it was three days' circumference. Well, it doesn't say circumference. It says it was three days in breadth. Some people were saying, oh, it meant a three days trip, like a, like a dignitary visit. Well, it doesn't say that either. It says it was three days in breadth. The point is, I think they're all missing the point. They're focusing too much on trying to figure out how big this was, that they're entirely missing what the, what the deal was. In my opinion, I think they're, they're missing it. And the point is that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Pretty simple, right? It says it a whole bunch of times. What the text is teaching us is that the destruction of Nineveh would have been significant. This wasn't a disobedient individual or a small rural town. This was a major metropolis of the ancient world. It was the sometime capital of the Assyrian Empire, a massive world power of the ancient world. It's a city of value. We learn later that it was filled with 120,000 people plus their, their animals and their goods. They translated it kind of into modern terms. If God told you to go to Moscow and preach against it and say that it would be destroyed, the destruction of that city would be a major world catastrophe. There's 12 and a half million people just in Moscow itself. It matters to God. Nineveh and what they did mattered to God as well. The sin, the sin of Nineveh was great, and God told Jonah to go and call out against it. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, God even calls Nineveh that great city. In Jonah 4.11, God asks Jonah, he says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And those are actually the last words of the book, which we'll get to later on, Lord willing. But what we learn about God from these words is that even if Jonah and the nation of Israel at the time had no concern or care for the lost, God does. God does. There's that question, I can't remember where it came from, where it says, God loves your enemies, so why don't you? God cares that people are perishing. He is just, and he will punish sin, but Scripture tells us that God's desire is that all would repent and turn from their sin and be saved. And so here's a funny question which came up in a commentary I read from, I think it was like 1876. It's like really hard to get through all of that, but there's a nugget every once in a while. 
The question is, when God determines to act on the great evil of Nineveh, why didn't he just destroy it? And have you ever asked that as you've heard the book of Jonah taught or read it for yourselves? Why did God send a prophet to warn them if he was going to intend to destroy it? And why did God, in his ultimate sovereignty, send Jonah to those pagan sailors on that ship instead of letting them live out their lives in idol, as idol-worshipping heathens? Why did God send this warning to Nineveh instead of just pressing the red button like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah? You'll recall he rescued Lot and his family, but he didn't warn those two cities. He just said, I'm done with you, and wiped them out. And big question for us, why did God send the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth instead of giving us the judgment we deserve? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Why aren't we getting paid? The answer is that God had decided to save. It was God's choice to send a messenger who would bring God's message, which would result in changed hearts and minds. In chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah rightly says that God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is one of these passages which I call a truth statement or character attribute of God. This is a passage which says who our God is and what he is like. We have a God who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger, thank God, literally, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, and eager that sinners should turn from their sin and be saved from destruction. And this is why he cared about that great city, Nineveh, with 120,000 lost souls in it. And this is why he determined to send them a prophet to call out against them. And this is why he was patient with Jonah when Jonah rebelled. And this is why he sent someone to you with the gospel at some point in your life, if you are, in fact, a follower of Christ. In chapter 1, the sailors turn to Yahweh and are saved. They cry out to the covenant God of Israel. In chapter 2, Jonah is saved by God and he repents in the fish. In chapter 3, Nineveh, Nineveh responds to God's word. What word? What's the word? Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And this is the second point of our passage today. Jonah preached the word of God. He called out God's word of judgment he preached that the city would be overthrown. I think, at least I believe it was Billy Graham who said that before you can save somebody, they have to be unsaved. And what he meant by that was that before you can tell somebody the good news about Jesus Christ, they must know the bad news that the consequence of sin and the judgment of God that's coming against sin. You consider when you go to a jeweler, if you're in this income bracket, that is, and you see the diamonds on the, that black velvet. They have to have something dark behind it so that it, the diamonds sparkle all the more and shine better. Um, if you just found, saw a diamond lying on the, on the ground on the beach, most of us would probably just walk by it. But it's the contrast which makes the good stand out so much against the black. The wages of sin is death. The consequence of Nineveh's wickedness was destruction. 
It was fully and completely God's intention to wipe this city out unless they repented from their wickedness. And this is still the gospel message today, the true gospel, the full gospel. You know, we use the word saved to describe somebody becoming a Christian, but we very infrequently talk about what we must be saved from. Why do we use that word? Why do we say salvation? Saved from what? Well, you know the answer because you've been attending this church for a while. It's God's wrath against sin. There's no good news unless it's put in contrast with the bad news. And the bad news is that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is that God is a consuming fire. The bad news is that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The bad news is that unless a person repents, they will perish. The Bible describes unsaved people as being enemies of God, as being under God's wrath, as those who are perishing. The book of Acts says that God has fixed a day when he will judge the earth. It's on his calendar, circled, this date, judge the earth. Not just an individual city like Nineveh, but all cities and all peoples. And the book of Revelation describes in many places and in many ways what this awful judgment will look like. You know, earlier I quoted Matthew 7, in which Jesus says that the broad road, the way unsafe people are going, ends in what? Destruction. So when Jonah said to Nineveh, 40 days until you're destroyed, it was a consistent message with God's character, his actions, and his attitude towards sin and wickedness. And the word was, enough. The sin of Nineveh will cease now, either through repentance or destruction. Now again, remember that the original readers of Jonah were a rebellious and idolatrous Israel. In this Israel, if Jonah is any example, and if Micah is, is any example, um, would have really liked the idea of God destroying Nineveh, the capital city of their enemies, the Assyrian Empire. And in fact, it's not many years later where Nineveh, presumably under new management, actually does come and destroy Israel. So they would have liked the idea of hearing that God was planning to destroy Nineveh. But their glee would have really turned to anger and shock at what comes next in the story. They probably would have really liked, oh good, Jonah finally went. He's going to deliver this message of doom to Nineveh. Until you get to verse 5, verse 5a, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And this is the third point of our passage today. The people believed God. The Ninevites believed God. They repented and they mourned for their sin. So in our theme today of the importance of story details, this is very significant. The brutal, barbaric, sinful Gentile city of Nineveh heard the message of Jonah preached, and they believed. And it's also significant in the details of the detail, because it doesn't say they believed Jonah. It doesn't say that they believed Jonah's message. It says they believed God. This pagan people had the eyes of their hearts open, and they recognized that when God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, brought them a message that this was truly the one true God who spoke to them. And they believed God when he said he was going to destroy the city in 40 days. 
The Bible teaches us that repentance is a gift from God. It's not in a natural fallen person to recognize that they're sinners in the hands of an angry God and that they must turn from their sin or perish. They might feel bad about what they do, but they're not recognizing that their status before a holy God. It's a supernatural act, a divine gift of God. As Jonah himself said in Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. One commentator wrote, Repentance, like faith, is the gift of God. And even the most hardened sinner will humble himself before the Lord when the law and the gospel go forth in the power of God's grace. Peter said that Jesus was exalted to give repentance. And the book of Acts adds that through the gospel, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this is why Jonah himself never doubted that God would save people. And this is why it wasn't out of fear of the Ninevites for him that prompted Jonah to run from the presence of God. As we'll learn in chapter 4, it was because Jonah knew that God grants repentance, and God intended to grant repentance to the city of Nineveh. In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said that the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And this brings us to one of the central themes of our story, of our plots, the place of the Word of God. Jonah went to Nineveh according to God's Word. He preached God's Word to the Ninevites, and the people repented at the preaching of God's Word. God's Word is living and active, and when it is faithfully taught and faithfully shared, the hard parts and the easy parts, God's people's lives are transformed and their lives are renewed. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, you all know it. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Did you hear that? When God's word is taught or shared, it is being sent by God to accomplish the very purpose for which he intends it. And it won't return to him void. It will have the effect God purposed it to have. When we are obedient to God's word, when we share God's word, we learn from God's word, love God's word, we're sharing in this great cosmic enterprise of God's word changing lives and transforming hearts. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. God's word changed lives and transformed hearts in Nineveh. They repented at the preaching of God's word by Jonah. They were convicted of their guilt before God, and they were cut to the heart, just like the hearers of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And these, again, weren't just typical metropolitan city dwellers. These were brutal Assyrians who made piles of human heads, and they uh, skinned people alive. The savagery and the cruelty of these people is as great as any bloodthirsty people in history. Yet God convicted them of their sin because God's word accomplishes God's purpose, and God's purpose for Nineveh was to bring them to repentance. 
and they believed God. This was such a short passage from the story of Jonah, but so rich in theological truth and insight into the Word of God and into God's character and ways. And I hope from it that we have seen and learned that God's Word is trustworthy and powerful. And as followers of God, we are to be obedient to His Word. And I hope we see also that the God who has revealed Himself in the Bible is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love relenting from disaster. This is our God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for the truth that you've given to us from your word. That I do pray, Lord, for it to be effective on us, that our hard hearts would be changed, that we would repent of any sin that we're clinging to, Lord, that we would understand that you give us goodness and beauty and truth that you created us for yourselves to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be emboldened to share your word and to live by your word. We pray these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.